Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 31. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, the Documentary Life Podcast, and the Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. If you're watching this uh, on a clip via YouTube, and, and we do uh, run a number of clips of each and every episode up on YouTube, um, you can see that that that, that I'm, I'm coming to you from an Airbnb that we rented, that Steph and I rented for the summer, in, in the middle of the English countryside, in uh, uh, beautiful outskirts of Ipswich in, in Suffolk County, if anybody knows uh, uh, UK. Um, I'm... You might be able to see. I don't know on you, that, that I'm wearing uh, the doc. This is a this is a documentary life T-shirt. I don't know if you can you can see that the, there's the logo here. Uh, I had a couple of these printed up just for the fun of it, uh, just before we came over here. Um, at some point uh, in the very near future, we'll, we'll make those available for purchase online. Anyhow, I'd like to take a moment and share a little personal milestone that I recently achieved. It's it's something that I'm both proud of and not so proud of. As of late June 2017. I became student loan debt-free, an original loan amount of around 25k, and this kind of dates me, of course. For five years of schooling at 25k, that sounds like nothing now, right? That's finally been eradicated. I can't tell you the lightness of feeling that this has given me. Memories of avoiding making payments, years deferring the loan payments, making minimum payments that only covered the interest for the, for the loan, until finally, about 10 years ago, when making a very conscious decision to get more serious about my finances, I started paying larger amounts on my debt, a debt that had basically been with me for over half of my life. I know, it's unbelievable. You heard that, by the way, correctly. I've had student loan debt since I was about 22 years old. I'm 45 now. So for 23 years, I've carried around the financial and psychic weight of owing someone, albeit an institution, tens of thousands of dollars. And and for most of that time, I didn't have any clear plan of how how I was even going to pay it back. So Steph and I, we decided to pay the remainder of my student loan with one large sum, you know, one fell swoop. On one hand, it felt like a massive weight had been lifted from my shoulders and from my mind, right? I was proud to have finally gotten my, forgive me, my shit together over the past decade to be able to pay off my debt and and before that purchase our house. I'm so thankful I was able to turn things around and realize what a burden debt was in my life. On the other hand, looking back, I can honestly say that I'm not very proud that I avoided this debt for so long, not to mention, you know, let it go for over half of my life, all the while just collecting more and, and more interest. The fine student loan institutions, they made thousands of dollars on me. I'm not proud of that, no. But I definitely learned some valuable lessons that I have now been able to apply to my life today. And that includes my documentary life, which is precisely what we'll be examining in the host segment of today's TDL, debt, and what it means and how it affects the documentary filmmaker's personal as well as professional life. This is The Documentary Life. Thanks for joining me today.
For today's Doc Lifer question of the week, I'd like to share an email from a Hossip, a documentary filmmaker based out of Italy. Hossip's passion is documenting inhabitants and their relationships with architectural spaces in Venice. Hossip had recently signed up for the Doc Lifer newsletter. As many of you Doc Lifers already know, if you go to the Documentary Life website and sign up for the Doc Lifer newsletter, I send you a free download of my first documentary film, Journey to Kathmandu. Well, Hossip wrote me a super thoughtful email, which detailed his own documentary journeys, as well as gave me some very nice thoughts on Journey to Kathmandu. In it, in fact, he included a question to the director. I enjoyed watching Journey to Kathmandu. This is why I like a good documentary film, because it is educative and tells stories that are achievable only through personal exploration or by a well-documented research. I like how you draw the storyline, keeping the audience curious of what could come next. All of these told in both observational and participative or participatory style. And finally, I wouldn't miss to mention of the goat sacrifice scene. I know that it is sensitive and in some situations that could be a problematic case, especially dealing with animal rights movements. But however, I wonder if you had any hesitation to have that decision. Although I was so aware of what was about to happen, but being a, re a very realistic action, after a couple of seconds, it looked even surreal. Now, what Hassab is referring to is a particular scene that is the sort of denouement, if you will, of the film. I was filming the, the rituals of the holiest Hindu festival in Nepal, which included the sacrifice of a goat to the goddess Durga. The sacrifice is done by beheading the animal, a swift death to an animal that would then be prepared, cooked, and, and consumed by the entire extended family. Now, to answer Hossip's question about hesitancy, I have to say that the only hesitancy that I ever really had was whether or not to mention the particular scene to the audience at its, uh, at its Portland premiere prior to the screening. In the end, I decided to give the audience members an opportunity to you know, decide for themselves whether or not they wanted to, to maybe look away when the scene would come up. Even today, I'm still not sure if that was the right decision or not, but I'm sure many filmmakers, in fact, would be upset about such a thing. At the time, I was a little put off by it, honestly, by giving the pre-screening warning, but, but I ended up doing it anyway since many family and friends were in the audience. But was I hesitant to film the scene itself or include it in its unbroken form? It, it does play real time in the final edit of the film. Absolutely not. I've been researching and then filming on this for two years. So in terms of filming the actual sacrifice, I was long mentally prepared for the event. And honestly, once I'm behind the camera and, and, and filming a scene, I almost forget that I'm even there. I'm sure a number of you can relate to that, if not most of you. You know, I just kind of melt into a, a slightly removed reality whereby I'm, I'm almost just observing something in a small screen, right? The monitor, if that makes sense. And look, given the storyline, there's absolutely zero surprise that there is potential to see the sacrifice of a goat or two. It's a pretty critical component to the film, which essentially follows the once-in-a-lifetime trek that goats make from their farmland lives in Tibet to their sacrificial deaths in Kathmandu during the holy, holiest festival in Nepal known as Dosai. So again, for me, there was no hesitancy to film or include the entire scene in the film. Any hesitancy, it only came into play at the premiere screening that I had for friends and family in, in Portland. And I have to say, for the most part, people understood and appreciated, given the context of the story, how the sacrifice played out. I hope that answers your question, Hossip. Thank you again for taking the time to not only watch the film, but to send me your emailed thoughts. 
If you yourself would like to get on the Doc Life or Question of the Week segment, whether by asking me a question or commenting on a, a, a past episode, or perhaps sharing a bit of wisdom with the Doc Lifer community, please drop me a line at chris at barongfilms.com. And uh, the email address spelled is chris at b-a-r-a-n-g-f-i-l-m-s.com. Chris at barongfilms.com. Debt is something that a lot of us live with today. In fact, for those of us who live in the Western world, it's practically become a rite of passage to get our first credit cards, right? First credit cards and max them out in the first couple of months, thereby starting the train of debt that might very well affect us for years and years. Whether it be to their student loan institution, a car loan, uh, like car lease, right? House mortgage or, or credit cards. So many of our parents and our grandparents and our children all seem to carry around some sort of financial burden. And we doc lifers, we are certainly no exception. We've all heard the stories of independent filmmakers like Robert Rodriguez or Kevin Smith, you know, who made their first feature films by maxing out credit cards. Not to mention the case of Rodriguez selling his body for clinical trials. Fortunately for these cats, their films, they beat the odds and got picked up for theatrical distribution and their money was made back in short order and, and, and then some. But the harsh reality for most independent filmmakers who make their first films on credit cards, not only are they in debt for years and years to come afterwards, but often they're crippled by that debt. And maybe their next film, it never even happens. So as an independent documentary filmmaker, when is it and when is it not a good idea to be going into any kind of debt? Well, I think in order to discuss this sort of topic, we must take a look at the different forms of debt that are out there that, that, that we may come across or experience. After all, going into credit card debt in order to make your documentary film is only one of the many ways in which a documentary filmmaker might find themselves into debt. For example, you might be thinking about buying that brand new top-of-the-line camera that you've had your eyes on for some time, but have never really had the cash to do so, and most likely won't have the cash anytime soon to actually buy it outright. Companies like Sony and Canon, they've recently gotten into this leasing game in order to give filmmakers another option. Basically, how it works is that the camera company, they'll partner with another financial institution to offer its customers a leasing agreement for their cameras. You as the customer, you, you go through with a fairly straightforward application process that checks your credit score and, and your current you know, employment status. And usually an, an, an answer about your eligibility for the loan, it, it happens within the same day of applying. The camera company or retailer that sells the camera, they then have you sign forms and contracts and whatnot. And so in rather short order, you walk away with your camera as well as a significant amount of debt that you have to pay back according to the terms of the contract. Now, thankfully, companies like, like Sony and Canon, they're working with companies that are not trying to, ch you know, chain you into debt for the rest of your life, you know, by cri crippling you with some ridiculous interest amount. The interest rates on these types of loans, they're often just over 1%. 18 months ago, Steph and I made the decision to get into one of these leasing agreements in order to secure um, the, the Canon C300 Mark II camera. Any sort of lease in our lives, it was never something that we'd normally get ourselves into. In fact, neither one of us has ever taken out a car loan of any sort. Car lots, in fact, car lots, they hate to see us come on the lot because we always want to pay for the car in its entirety with cash that day, you know, that same day. Not sign on to some interest-heavy loan that would keep us in debt for years to come with the car lot company. So doing this sort of thing for a $16,000 camera, it's, it was a very big deal for us. Suffice to say, the decision wasn't taken lightly. You know, we broke out our monthly expenses spreadsheet 
yes, we do have such a thing. And you should too, by the way, if you're ever serious about filmmaking as a business. And, and we looked at how the additional monthly expenses, you know, or, the, or how the additional monthly expense would impact the family. And by the way, it's one thing to be the starving artist when it's just you that you're responsible for. I know firsthand. But, but when you've got other mouths to feed, it's it, hopefully, obviously, a totally different decision or situation. Ultimately, what helped us to come to our decision to take on the lease and really was the impetus for considering upgrading our camera package in the first place was that we had some steady work from a client coming in that, that required us to shoot in 4K. At the time, we owned the Canon C100, which didn't shoot 4K. So, you know, we knew we'd have to rent a camera package anyhow. Anyhow, our lease on the new camera was around 500 bucks a month. So that would basically be the rental costs if we needed a 4K camera for a particular job. So if we were able to make sure to have at least one job per month where we could be sure to include $500 for camera in our budget, then we knew we'd at least cover the monthly lease. And if we got two jobs in that month, we knew we'd be covered for two months. Now, sure, was it a risk? Yes. The steady work, it could, it could have gone away at any point, right? The client could have gone away, which is, I'm sure many of you know, it happens all of the time. It's a fickle business, this, this film and video thing. So I've, as I've mentioned in a past episode, on diversifying your income as a documentary filmmaker, it, it's never a great idea to put all of your, you know, the proverbial eggs into one basket. So if we'd been counting on the steady work of just this one client, we probably would not have pulled the trigger on the least on the lease. But because we knew that we'd have other clients who needed our services and that being an owner operator of the Canon C300 Mark II, it made me a more attractive hire as a freelance camera op. We felt comfortable with going into this very calculated debt. And really, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Comfort levels. What amounts of debt are you and are you not going to be comfortable with? Many of you might know about Dave Ramsey, the financial, you know, get out of debt guru. He's got some tried and true practices that have, you know, literally helped tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, not only get themselves out from beneath, you know, this crushing burden of debt, but then develop some fantastic financial habits for the rest of their lives. His books and downloads definitely were instrumental in in my own financial turnaround, but I don't necessarily agree 100% with all of his suggestions. For instance, he definitely would have recommended against taking out the lease, regardless of the low interest rate or the you know fairly urgent need for this specific type of camera. He would have said, "Put you should put monthly increments away. You know, put the money aside in a safe place, and once you'd accrued the sixteen grand, go and buy your camera then." But I'm not sure that Dave really understands the cam- camera industry, and I don't expect him to. And that by the time one might save up the 16 grand, that camera might no longer be relevant. In fact, it most likely will no longer be relevant. Or that the money that you lost by not having the proper equipment to do the jobs, you'd, you'd never be able to get it back, right? Now, now, that being said, if it's not urgent that you have to have that camera today or for next week, it's probably a good idea to make a plan to get the money for your camera purchase. And, and, and that can include putting away monthly amounts, um, opening up a, an account within, within your bank, or better yet, in something like Betterment, where you set up an, an automatically withdrawal that goes directly to this account. And in the case of Betterment, you could literally be making a little money on this money as you save your way to, to your camera. Betterment is this um, sort of uh, uh, investment um, application, if you will. Um, definitely look it up. Go to Betterment.com or you can download the app. Uh, I've been using it for years. It, it 
it's a great way to, to make a little bit of money on your own money that you have in savings anyhow. Another part of your plan to purchase a camera or really on any other piece of important film gear, it can be as, as line items on, on, on uh, job budgets or grant applications. And I say that because you know what? It's important to remember that your time on a project and the equipment rental costs should always be included in grant applications just as much as they normally would any sort of job budget. You don't work for free and neither does your camera. So remember to put these sorts of things in your grant application budgets. Now this next part, if you're comfortable with this sort of thing and you've got rental protection through your production uh, insurance, you can also rent your camera or other gear out. Just make sure that your production insurance truly does include coverage for what you rent out as, as not all do. And also make sure that there truly is a market for renting your gear. So if you buy a particular camera with the idea of recouping some of the costs uh, by renting it out, do your research in your market and make sure that the camera is in fact in demand. And you know, is it a camera or format that is being used in your market or is your market perhaps already flooded with the availability of this camera? I'd like to tell you about a cool tool that can help you track your debt and, and really give you an idea of not only how much on a particular loan that you might still owe, but how much interest will be accrued on the duration of that loan. Mint.com. Mint.com can track all of your debts and payments, whether uh, credit cards, personal loans, house mortgages, anything you can think of. And, and, and my favorite thing about mint.com services is this, this little slider thing, right? This little slider thing that, that lets you, it lets you see how much you might save or accrue on interest in any given monthly payment amount for any length of time period. So for example, say, um, let's say you're going to make a big film, uh, doc, doc filmmaking purchase, a package, right? You, you you've bought a, a MacBook pro, uh, a Sony FS7 camera, some LED lights, and a decent lav, uh, decent lav mic set. Say you buy all of this on a credit card, and it costs you just over ten grand. Say the interest on the credit card is sixteen point nine percent. I'm just coming up with that off the top of my head. Uh, you'd set up a goal in Mint.com with all of the above information, right? And within seconds, you could see how long it might take you to pay off the debt if you were paying, say, two hundred bucks a month on it. But, but what's wild is that it will show you how much interest the, cut, the credit card company would make off of you during that particular time span. And then by using this, this slider, you can adjust the monthly payment amounts and instantaneously see how much time and interest is affected by adjusting your monthly, in, your monthly amounts, your monthly payment amounts. I don't know about you, but this kind of illustration, it makes it so much more real for me. And it gives me it gives me great motivation to pay off that loan much quicker. Another decision that we as doc lifers might come up against is whether or not to reduce our working hours at a job, or maybe even quit a full time job outright, in order to pursue our filmmaking dreams full time. Now, this is the sort of idea that might have been scoffed at even ten years ago, right? But the truth is. With where technology is today, for a relatively cheap price, we can build out um, we can build out our own video production companies. And with the increasing demand for video content like never before, if you're savvy at all, you can get out there and sell your services as a filmmaker. Again, of course there are there are a number of risks to be weighed here, and more so if you've others others' well-being that you're responsible for. So I'd highly recommend coming up with a monthly budget breakdown of your income and outgoing expenses. Come up with a monthly expenses number that you can be comfortable with. From there, you can decide if you want to say, 
save up six months of expenses of living expenses before leaving your job and becoming a full maker full uh, a filmmaker full time or maybe you keep your job and, and reduce the hours a bit while you build out your business plan and then start going out and pursuing clients again there are many ways to finagle this sort of thing and i'm not telling you that you should or shouldn't quit your job to pursue your film dreams full time absolutely not doing that that's not what i'm saying at all only you can know if that is or isn't the right thing for you to do and, and there are many of us who are absolutely happy with working a full-time gig and living our documentary dreams on the side. The two endeavors, in fact, living side by side. And, and, and the truth is that may even be how most of us live our doc lives. Only you know what is right for you, but there are obvious financial decisions that we will surely need to make along the way to come to that decision. Debt can be a crippling thing in our lives. And in this day and age, there are so many ways that one can find themselves in debt. So maybe now more than ever, finances for the filmmaker is a critical component that we must examine on an individual basis and on a consistent basis. I mean, finances for the filmmaker can be a constant and ever-evolving juggle, right? So whatever it is that we can do to best inform our financial choices in our lives, it's only going to help us as we navigate our documentary lives. Thanks for listening to this segment on debt in the documentary filmmaker's life. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode by going to thedocumentarylife.com. There you'll find additional resources, information, and inspiration to go along with this podcast. I'll also put up the YouTube clips that I mentioned early on up on the show notes. When we come back, we'll meet today's documentary industry guest. When I first started making documentary films, I was often making them entirely on my own dime. It wasn't that it was a conscious decision on my part, I just really wanted to get out and start making my film. Does this sound familiar to you? When you have a great idea for a doc and the opportunity to get out there and start shooting, you don't want to let something like money get in the way of that. And for a while, it may not, but unfortunately, unless you have unlimited resources, eventually it will. Not having money for your doc film will slow you down, reduce your crew size, your film production values and aesthetics, even the story you're able to tell. And that's not even accounting for the additional stress, frustration, and your inability to work on the project full time. We don't accept that for ourselves anymore, and we don't want you to accept it either. Money is out there for every documentary film, and that includes yours. Every day, money is donated or awarded to documentary films. Why not yours? The trick is in knowing where to look for it and how to secure it for your film. In the Documentary Academy, we have the most comprehensive funding module that you will find anywhere in any course on fundraising for your documentary film. We cover the A to Z on raising funds for your film so you will never again be left wondering where the money's coming from. Enroll in the Academy today by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash academy and start your journey to raising 10, 25, or even $100,000 for your documentary film. John, welcome to the documentary life. I know that it's been uh, it's been a, a little while coming. I reached out to you probably I don't know. I feel like at least a half a year ago, John, and and, uh, and for one reason or another, we just hadn't been able to quite connect. And now with with your film Glitter Tribe being out and it's distributed and people can watch it, it seems like a, a great time for us to be having this conversation now and for us to be finally connecting. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I appreciate you uh, staying up on the progress of the film and uh, also not giving up on you and I finding a time to talk to each other. So that's good. 
so John, uh, in looking at a bit of your background, um, it looks like you started out in in uh, by going to Brooks Institute down in Santa Barbara, California. Yeah. I have a really good friend and colleague who also went to Brooks, Brian Kimmel. I don't know if you worked with Brian. Um, he, he's an, he's also another camera operator in town, and and, and documentary is a big a big part of his work. Give us a little glimpse of what Brooks Institute is about, and then let's get into your photography because it seems like photography was where the groundwork, both, um, you know, professional and passion wise that sort of, um, well, I mean, that's kind of where it all started. Is that correct? A hundred percent. Uh, that's, that's how I got pulled into any of this is as a kid, I really fell in love with photography and, uh, and I just wouldn't let go of a camera and I just started shooting everything and everywhere and ended up getting into Brooks as a, 15 year old uh, Brooks was a three-year waiting list mm. at the time and uh, uh, <laughs> Brooks uh, has now gone out of business I'm sorry to say it was for um, decades the number one technical school right. so as opposed as opposed to an art school hmm. a technical school for mostly still photographers uh, but they also had a motion picture division, and within that motion picture division, they also had a specialty uh, that you could uh, get your degree in, in underwater cinematography. <laughs> that sounds that amazing. Was, yeah, and that's the only place in the world, I think, at the time, mm. certainly in America, that mm. you could do that. And so I, I really had a Jacques Cousteau fantasy oh, when man. I was a kid. <laughs> And that was the only place to try and live that out. So yeah. it was a fantastic experience for me. And it was in Santa Barbara, California, and that kind of introduced me to the West Coast. And and uh, it was a great experience. Uh, technically, you know, if if you don't go to an art school, you can actually miss a lot of the the technique and the science that is uh, a part of shooting and a part of. Um, in the case of still photography, you know, developing your film and, of course, spending time in the darkroom printing and all of that, you know, whatever, much of which is 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 lost now unless you're an art photographer, mostly. Right. right. Um, but all of that relates to understanding film and light and the science of that. Um, even if even if you don't go on to use it. It helps you understand, um, uh, you know, the, the, the science uh, of it all. So I, I had a fantastic time there, and it was a great setup for me. So, At what point did film and video become a greater part of your life? Photography was such a focus for a while. When did film and video come into the picture? Well, I realized when I went to school that I did not want to to just be an architectural photographer or a portrait photographer that I really wanted to, um, I really wanted to work in filmmaking. Uh, so that happened at Brooks and, and that's how I ended up in the motion picture division there. And they had a lot of relationships with, uh, Hollywood studios and some producer directors in LA that could help people. And they had a very strong placement service. And, uh, uh, I ended up at the end of school taking a job in uh dallas texas and that was about 1979 or 1980 mm -hmm. and uh and worked there for about four years kind of coming up in the ranks at a big production company 
uh, to become a, uh, a producer and a young director. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it just, uh, I, I like working with bigger groups of people and, and still photography is a very, it, it's a very lonely kind of job. It mm. can be unless you have a big <laughs> studio or something, you know, it's, it's basically a guy and a camera. Yeah, and right. I, I, I wanted to kind of tell bigger stories. I'm not making a judgment about it, but I, right. I wanted to, I, I wanted to, to, to kind of develop into a filmmaker that could, that could tell bigger stories. So now, John, I know you from having having worked in in the film and video industry in Portland from Brightwater Media, your company. Uh, I guess right. at what so were you working freelance at all, and you also had Brightwater, or so how did that work? Be, and I asked because you know for myself. Uh, I worked as a freelance, right? And I, initially, I came up through the editorial ranks, and then I got right. into camera operation. And so I was hired as a camera op. And but through my company, which is of course what we funneled, you know, all of our doc work through, and then and some of the commercial work that we had, that was where I was able to direct, you know, do the direct DP sort of thing. I know that a lot of my listeners kind of kind of uh, kind of work between those worlds as well. Did you always do it through your company or were you, was there a time when you were working as a freelancer as well as running Brightwater Media? Oh, that's a good question. Um, when I left Dallas, I decided to, to, to start out on my own. And really the only, the only way to go out and actively get jobs from clients was to present yourself as a production company, as you know. Right. So I, I, I never really liked the idea of just like sitting around waiting for the phone to ring, <laughs> yeah. uh, which, you know, which is kind of a freelancer's world. You know, yeah. you can schmooze and you can stay in touch with people, but you're waiting for them to call you when they get a job. Mm. And that just seemed that seemed too indirect mm -hmm. uh, uh, of a way to have a family. I wanted to get married. Uh, I wanted to, you know, just, you know, kind of live my own version of the American dream. Yeah. And it didn't, it didn't seem like freelancing was, um, was the easiest way to do that at uh, least. Right, right. Also, also the only way it seemed to me to really make a buck was to present yourself as a production company, do an entire project. Right. And then for better or worse, um, then hopefully, you know, you have a couple thousand dollars or something at the end mm. that if you were just a, a camera operator or something like that, mm. yes, you would get paid your day rate, but, but then it's all, but then it's all over. And then you right. just hope for another shoot right until the next shoot. Right. Right. Whereas if you, if you work as a production company, you could say, well, you got paid as a director and a producer um, and then if you had been smart about the whole thing, you figured out a way to have money left over once you paid everybody. Right, right. And built the also, company. Also, that gave, that, that, that gave the filmmaker a relationship with that client. Mm. So there's another possible way to get work there, let alone then you're building your reel. And, mm. you know, we're all kind of building our reels, especially in the early years, mm. all, all the time. And, and again, it's kind of that control thing. For me to have any control whatsoever of what I would end up with on my right. reel, yeah. I had to go get this work. I, I, I couldn't depend on 
the only things on my reel being things that I would be called to do as a freelancer. That just mm, mm, that, mm. that that just didn't make sense to me. So, um, sort so. Of creatively and financially, you wanted that control. It's it's really interesting, John, that uh, you 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 chose that approach because it's a different approach from a lot of people, including myself. You know that you and I know in the industry, and it seems like you made a decision early on that you knew that there were things. And you had the foresight to realize what you wanted to be doing and how to build your life. And you thought, you know what, the best way for me to do this is to do it through and to present myself as my own company. And so therefore you had more control over decisions. You had more, um, you know, you know, financial decisions that were in your control. You had more creative decisions early on in your control. I have a lot of respect that, uh, that you did that early on because, you know, a lot of us, have to sort of um and 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 this is and and there's a lot of good in this too sort of working your way up the ranks right and oh, and, yeah. and and we and we talk about that a lot a lot on the show that look you know j- get yourself on a film set and be a PA work in production and kind of right. you know, immerse in your, yourself in what it's like to be on a set and learn from there and figure out the different trades that are sort of the rate the route that you might want to get to but you knew early enough that you wanted to, for instance, be a director to own, you know, you wanted to be a director, you wanted to own a company and, uh, and that's how you started really. Plus Chris for, yeah. for, you know, for, for, for better or worse, because there are times when it's worse, hmm. but for better, for better or worse, I, when you get out of film school, if you go to a really top film school, let's say today, that might be USC. Mm. So let's say you went to USC. Well, you don't leave USC and go start as an assistant cameraman. Mm. It just, you know, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. You you have directed and produced and worked as a camera operator and done mm. all of these things. So the idea is that you might have the skills to plug in higher. Uh. You know, you learn a lot of things outside of a school environment. But like I say, that's the for better or worse part. So I put out a shingle pretty early after right. I, 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 I had my first job. But after that first job at a studio hmm. in Dallas, yeah. I, I, I figured, well, I had a reel by that time. Right. And I, I could say I produced and directed these things, which was true. Hmm. And, um, and then at that point, the people, the the clients or potential clients are looking at you to see if they could trust you as a company. That's you know, right. Because there's, right. there's a difference in trusting a guy as a company to take your, let's just say it's a $100,000 job, mm. to take your $100,000 job and they know it's going to get delivered as opposed to a guy who uh, I then go choose as a gaffer. Right. So that gaffer, it's an important choice, no doubt, or an operator or something. But but I'm not looking at him or her delivering an entire show That's to me. That's right. They're, that- just, they're just doing one job. Right. You know, so it's very important. And there may be on a bigger job, 20, 30, 40 people yeah. doing their job. Yeah. But 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 none of them are, are expected to have the the whole effect yeah. on any one job. That when you go to sell a client, you know you're 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 selling yourself, and you're saying I will deliver. That's right. You can look at my last work and this and that, and and I'll look at the materials you have, and I'll suggest other things back to you. But you can trust me to deliver something that takes me, let's call it, as a commercial artist, 
that I'll go get all the subs. You know, the client doesn't want to know about gaffers and DITs and stuff. <laughs> they just want to know that you can deliver. Mm. You know, that's your job. And I always, you know, I, 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 I also I was in the Coast Guard for a while and stuff like that. So I, I enjoy managing a, a, a group of pirates. Um, so, <laughs> so, so it, it's, it's, it's never been difficult for, I mean, it's the best way possible for me to get five or 10 or 20 people behind me to, mm. to do a job. Mm. Um, but, and some people aren't oriented that way and that That's doesn't right. make them better or worse. They're just, they, they'd rather be a gaffer. That's right. You know, one of the, one of the best moments I had kind of growth moments early on in the business was I was, uh, kind of kicking around, uh, 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 with some people I knew in, in uh, Los Angeles. And, um, and I realized in the business, now I was still only in my early 20s, but mm. I realized in the big business and the feature business that there were 65-year-old grips. <laughs> you know, you don't think about that. In the rest of the country, you know, it doesn't, that the business isn't like that. Right. But right. in the feature world, which we all, in some ways, especially when you're young, yeah. you aspire to. And you think, <laughs> right. That's the royalty that a royalty lives in, call it New York or L.A. <laughs> yeah, of course. And you stand on the set, and it actually made me feel so good yeah. that that there were um, props guys whose father was a props guy, yeah. whose father was a props guy, and and you realize that this wasn't really just a gig or a kind of a fun thing you thought of. This could be a career, That's and right. you could be sixty years old and be doing this work. Um, so, well, uh, you know, so anyway. it's interesting, John, that you say that it, it, one of the things somehow that, that surprised me, John, um, working it, working as a PA, uh, it, it took me a few gigs to realize at some point I started to, the more I started to interact with people, the more I started to interact, you know, with people in production, with art department, with, you know, grips, yeah. grip and lighting department, the more I started to interact with people, the, at, at some point I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute here. Not everybody here, and somehow you're going to laugh at this because somehow this surprised me. Not everybody here is a filmmaker. In right. fact, there are actually only a few people that I would meet, or you know, that I will meet on jobs that are actually filmmakers. The majority right. of the people that we work with are tradespeople, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, we we, we really work with a lot of tradespeople, craftspeople. Uh, you can call them also technicians. That's yes, technicians, to of course. From, yeah. from 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 what they what they do at all. Um, but yes, you're you're absolutely right. Let's transit. Let's start talking about documentary, man. How how yeah. did how did documentary? You know, has that always been a passion for you, or how did that develop as a passion? When and how did documentary become a part of your life? One of the very earliest. Uh, memories that I have uh, of noticing anything about the film life that was interesting to me were Jacques Cousteau documentaries. Yeah, so this, right. is, this is this is where I got this uh, uh, kind of you know early hunger for telling stories that weren't scripted. And I'm not against scripted stories, but but you know going out and 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 determining what is out there and finding something and then making something out of it once you shot it kind of thing in the in the late 70s there was kind of a saying at the time that uh you know commercials if you weren't in features and that was very difficult to get into and you basically needed to live in LA but if you weren't in features you were in commercials 
Right. And 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 there's a couple truths. One is nobody nobody really grows up and wants to get in this business because of commercials. Hmm. So nobody goes to film school dreaming about being a commercial director. <laughs> um, but that's where a lot of work is. And there is good money there. And there are good commercials to be made. Right. And you do learn your craft. Um, but one of the sayings that people had or that we had uh, in the late 70s was, uh, and almost everybody had some version of this, it was just a known thing that, well, commercials is what you did you know, to put food on the table of and to course, pay rent. Yeah. Yeah. But docs is what you did. A, it was a given that you wouldn't make money on them. <laughs> B, it was what you did to fill your soul. Yes. Uh, and it was also what you did to fuck around with your friends, you yeah, know, right, so, right. so nobody else was telling you what to do. You got together and said, we're going to make a story about so-and-so, or we're going to Montana, get in the car. We're going to go shoot this yeah, thing. Yeah, we're going to roll. Exactly. That, and that's exciting. Yeah. You know, you're making something out of dirt, you know, as opposed <laughs> to as opposed to a client, you know, that's like, well, what we need to do is we need to, you know, we need to show the people, you know, so that's fine. You can make a you can make a life out of that. Mm. And thank God, knock on wood, right up until today, yeah. I'm still making a life at that. That's right. Um and 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 I I appreciate it. They have supported my dreams uh, uh unknowingly. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And 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 to take that further, Chris, mm. that has changed uh, because docs have hit another wave here in the last few years. Indeed, and docs are everywhere, yeah. and I and and there are more docs than ever, mm. uh, and there are in many ways better docs than ever. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying that there weren't great docs back then; there certainly were, but now because there are more, um, there there are more better ones. And and you can make a buck on them. There are actually people that hire people to make docs. That <laughs> honestly didn't exist before. You right, know, it didn't right. exist. Don't just be satisfied because I'm going to take my clothes off. Make me work for it. My Burles persona, she's my megaphone. She is an amplification of all the people that I've been, that I am, that I want to be. I love boobs. Let's see more of them. And she's like, now I'm going to fart on you. And I'm like, you're going to what? And then I kicked her in the balls. <laughs> There's three for you, one to romance you, one to fuck you, and one to take home to your mother. Assholes. <laughs> Assholes are the most incredible invention ever. Do I ever feel judged? Uh, yeah, every, every day, every, every fucking day. <laughs> I still consider myself a feminist because I do what I want with my body. I don't think that everybody should love what you're doing. It's probably boring if they do. <laughs> My mom was so shocked by me being on stage quite like this. I can fly. And I remember her coming to a show, that's my son, that's my son. The dancing and the sexy and the pretty, 
and the funny all come together at the same time. Only burlesque does that. If somebody doesn't set themselves on fire in the next two minutes, I'm out of this place. <laughs> you are taking them somewhere. You are becoming a physical manifestation of this really fantastic fantasy. Let's start talking about, about your current film. And sure. I've known this film for a long time as Glitter Tribe. Um, yes. And, and if it's okay, maybe we can refer to it as that just, you know, throughout Absolutely. because it's easier. But but tell us the, the complete title to the film and and, and 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 then go right into when and how, you know, this film came to be, John. Uh, let's talk about the title briefly. Yeah. Um, you know, we started shooting the film for a couple of years before we even had any inkling of what a title might be. We had all kinds of working titles. Mm. But we realized that once we kind of fell completely into this subculture, there were some words that they used and some titles and stuff that they called each other and they called their world. And one of them was that they were a part of the Glitter Tribe. Right. And right. so I thought that was freaking fantastic. It is, yeah. <laughs> so became the Glitter Tribe. Also, at that time in the development of the story, we were realizing, oh, shit, the real story here is about family, chosen family. Indeed. And so, uh, you know, it wasn't some clever put together of words that I came up with or my partner, my wife and, and creative partner, Julie Livingston, came yes. up with. Um, it, it, it was something they called themselves. So that totally worked as far as we were concerned. And everybody in the in the in the uh, burlesque community knew it and loved it and got it. When we finished the film, though, and we did get a distributor, and I'll tell you that story in a minute. When we did get a distributor, one of the things they wanted to do was change the title, and it wasn't because they per se didn't like the title. It's just that what we thought was strong about the title was an example of why it wasn't good for the for a bigger audience. Yeah, because it. It, it specifically, it, it was created within their world, <laughs> of course. and it speaks to their world. Yeah. And the distributors kind of like, uh, okay, well, that might be the center of the of the of the target. But as a distributor, you know, we're we're trying to look at a much much bigger audience relative to Netflix and yeah. other things. Right. And and we really want to get the word burlesque in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, uh, they wanted to use the word burlesque in it, and we ended up with burlesque part of the Glitter Tribe. Yeah. So we can call it Glitter Tribe, you and I. We okay. still refer to it as Glitter Tribe. Yeah. Its official title is Burlesque Part of the Glitter Tribe. What interested you about the subject matter? That had to be something that grabbed you. What's that story that, that said, hey, you yeah. know what? I want to make this doc. My wife was introduced to uh, a, quite a few dancers through some people that she knew. And one night, uh, this was about seven years ago, she was uh, asked to go to a burlesque show and asked if I wanted to go with her. Of course, I said yes. <laughs> and I had no idea what I was in for. And, uh, and here in Portland. And, you know, it was just, it, it was not what I expected it to be. So it was, a, it was about 10 different things. It was, of course, it was sexy. Of course, it was funny. Um, the, 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 the room was having so much fun yeah, and I don't right. mean I don't mean in a stripper uh, in a strip club kind of way like yeah come on take your clothes off it's not right, like that right um, 
in 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 a kind of uh, enrollment of joy and excitement of everybody having such a good time, uh, and you realize that uh, that these performers they had their they might have had their mother or father or uncle or brother or sister also in the audience, so there was no shame or embarrassment really about anything, and and it's all to not not all, but what I saw at that time was uh, was was all done to uh, pop music. Mm. So it had this very current, fresh feel to it, and all the cost. There's a lot of costuming, and I realized that all the costuming was made by the people, all the, cho- the by the performers, yes. all the choreographer, all the choreography made done by the performers, the music cut together by the performers, you know, pop music, but you still have to cut it to a certain time and stuff. And, uh, and, and, and that none of them were doing it for money. That's when right. you take, when you take money out of it, then it becomes a different animal. Mm. You say, Oh, well, what are you getting out of it then? Because you're spending a tremendous amount of time and money on something that, that, you know, that, that you're not, you're not going to get you. You you may split the door, but the door probably wouldn't even pay each person gas money. So so you know it's not a job. Uh, So it's so it's a joy, Uh, and and I thought to myself, well, you know, I I, I'm a little bit of a worldly guy, and I've been around a little bit, and I and I didn't know much about this new wave of burlesque. Yeah, I knew there's a rich history of burlesque. Of course, right. Um, but I didn't know about this and I thought this is perfect for a documentary because Mm. it's so visual and I thought surely I can, I can find interesting people to tell me the story Mm. and just basically get us into it. Um, and I think I was right. You know, it, it, it took us, uh, so literally after seeing that first show, now I had to be right looking for a project at the time Mm. and I was. But after that first show, uh, they were only going to do that show one more time mm. uh, that, that next week. Mm. And in that next week, I got uh, six cameras together to, oh, sh- to shoot it all. Okay. And, uh, and, you know, uh, we, 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 we lit this bar and we did this whole thing and we shot it, not really even knowing mm. what in the hell are we going to do or who are we going to talk to? Where is this going to go? Yeah. I just kind of knew, wait a minute, this is ephemeral. And this particular show, I wanted to record. Mm-hmm. And there are bits and pieces of that show in the final film. That was seven years ago. I hate when people call burlesque a hobby because for me, it's something that I almost dedicate more time and love and effort to than I do my own relationship. My partner goes to bed at like nine o'clock at night and I'm like, okay, I love you, I'll see you in the morning. And I'm in here until 5 a.m. gluing rhinestones down, putting feathers. Lots of things suffer. My bank account suffers, my sex life suffers. I do it because I love it, and I can't go on stage with something that's half-assed. There are days where it's like, I don't I don't even care if I ever perform again. I'm just going to keep gluing rhinestones, because this is awesome. The commonality between uh, what you're doing with this film and the work that, that my wife and I do is working within cultures. And, and right. that's what you're doing. You're filming a culture and a subculture here. And to do right. that, you have to immerse yourself in it for a while, and, 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 and if for no other reason, then you need to gain their trust. 
and and right. you're working in a subculture. They refer to themselves as a glitter tribe, right? They are a tribe amongst right. themselves. You are an imposter to that tribe. You have right. to be able to to come in, and that's going to take some time to gain their trust, to be able to not only you know get to the right angle to, to shoot you know the way that you would like to shoot, but when you sit down and and and, and John, when you're conducting these interviews with these performers, to really get to the heart of their stories. That takes time and that takes trust. It absolutely does, especially in a case where you're talking about things like nudity. Yes. Add to that, yes. add to that, all of these people have day jobs. Yeah. Right, and they right. have state and, and because of that and, and needing a separation, they have uh, stage names. And and part of that is that that girl is going to lose her job as being a bank teller. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, those kinds of things. So so you have to be extremely sensitive about that. And so it just happened to be also one of the early choices we made in making kind of uh, putting this together to tell the story. We decided that we would not go back and forth with everybody's day job yeah. and see how much <laughs> different they are in the day job and then how they transform at night. That's not that's that's an aspect of their lives, but sure. to me, that's not the interesting part of the story. Mm. Also, that would that that would mean I would be asking them to expose well, completely th their real life, if you were, right. you know, their right. their day life, their day and, life, yeah. Uh, and 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 that's a that's that's just a no no. They'll 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 lose their job. In that sense, you don't realize how much they're risking to yeah. be a burlesque uh, performer at night. body image issues and I was a kid who, who went swimming with their t-shirt on and I would not take off my shirt. Getting to a point where I could take my shirt off was all burlesque. What clicked for me, we were performing at this club and what the women liked was my body because it, it seemed real. Everyone's beautiful to someone. It's about finding a space that, that makes you feel comfortable enough to, to, to um, face those demons. Now, John, as much as I'm a red-blooded heterosexual male, you know, who enjoyed, let's say, some of the photography of this film, uh, you know, uh -huh. I've, I found myself, <laughs> I found myself drawn to the story of, of, of the three dudes, right? Uh, yeah. And particularly Isaiah. And, you know, one of the things he says in it, he, he, I don't consider myself a drag queen. You know, for me, right. I'm a character impersonator. You know, when you're dancing right. and, and you're all of these different characters, you're in love, you know, you're hurt, you're in pain, and you give all of these mannerisms that express what, you know, the song is talking about, that's a big part of, of, of dancing, right? It is that's, acting. And, that's and, exactly right. And is that, the, is that the common view with most of the performances? Or I should say yes, with the I performers would, yes. that, that they're acting? Yes. Yes, I would say so, because they're taking on a character, hmm. uh, and that character often changes uh, with different burlesque shows or different burlesque numbers, hmm. uh, you know, routines that they do to different music. Uh, they're taking on, right, they, they, they take on different characters as they come out. Again, that's essentially never done in stripping. Yeah, right, right, of course. Uh, so, so, so that's, that's, that's part of what makes it different. So they're, they're out there as, as an actor, as a performer that way. There's music throughout the film, right? And, and, and yes. I want to talk about that briefly, the heavy sure. use of copyrighted music. 
Obviously, yeah. this was going to be a, a, a hurdle to clear at some point, right? So yes. I'm assuming that fair use comes into play here and that you didn't yep. have tens of thousands of dollars of, for Correct. a budget to pay for copyright. So can you explain how this worked for your film and then how it you worked bet. for your distribution company? Absolutely. Clearly, you, you know what a documentarian is up against with fair use. So I figured that because all of these performers had chosen their music, not me, right. uh, that then in telling their story and showing them on stage, I, that that music could, be, could remain attached to their performance. Mm. That is a misconception. You cannot do that. Uh, except on a very limited basis, and mm. it's a very specific limited basis. Right. So in our film, we ended up with 17 clips, short clips, yep. less than 15 seconds each, yep. of pop music mm. that we did not pay a penny for. Right. And we, we struggled from the very beginning of trying to get the music cleared. Mm. I wanted to clear all the music. Sure. That was, you know, get get clearance on all the music um, because I wanted you to hear that girl doing that dance to Michael Jackson. Mm. That's mm. what she choreographed it to. Yeah. Not something I could replace it with. No. What are you going to replace Michael Jackson Thriller with? Well, yeah, of no course. And, and what are you going to replace <laughs> somebody's routine with? You know, why that's would exactly that's right. absurd? That's exactly right. So. Uh, uh, we, we found out in our journey with the, the top lawyers in this yeah, area, yeah. there are specific legal firms in Los Angeles that just deal with documentary music clearance and fair use issues. Mm. And I figured that was, especially with this film, I had to engage that company. Oh, of course. And, um, you know, and pay them several thousand dollars to yeah. look at rough cuts and, and, and give me notes on cue sheets. And, uh, and at the end of it all, I'll just cut to the chase. At the end of it all, there we, we got cleared 17 pieces, which means we had to replace about 100 plus pieces with soundalikes. And all of those sound alikes, all of the sound alikes were composed. We didn't go find them somewhere. Uh, Jim Walker is our uh, composer extraordinaire, and this guy is a masterful uh, uh, musician and, yep. and composer. Yeah. So he would do a surf guitar thing, and then he would do something that uh, that was a bossa nova, but it wasn't the bossa nova that we recorded at the time. Holy smokes! Because when you've got these dancers, you've got if you're going to replace it with something, first of all, you've got to match the beats per minute. Mm. And then second of all, you've got to match essentially the feel. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't replace a bossa nova with, I don't know, something that sounds like the Beatles or something. Right, right. You know, you've got to stay, you've got to stay true to it at least as much as you can. Yeah. Um, and, and essentially what you are working toward legally is a buy-off, essentially what's referred to as an opinion letter yeah. uh, by the legal firm. And what the opinion letter means is that the opinion is positive. The opinion <laughs> is, well, now the filmmaker has replaced enough of the things that are problematic, mm. which is usually time-wise, and they have kept ones that we think are okay, yeah. 
And we think that essentially our opinion, uh, especially because they're a top legal firm in this area, yes. our opinion is that these, the, the, the amount of clearances is okay. Burlesque for me was never a defiance. It was not a fuck you. So it wasn't something that I was like, ha I'm nigging now. What do you guys think about that? Um, it was, it's definitely been like a homecoming. So far was like I found my people <laughs> like everybody looked weird and it was celebrated and it was like encouraged and you weren't judged on that I mean we're all so different we look different we like different music we move differently we have different priorities but there's a commonality there we're all just telling our stories at the end of the day John as we've already established this this film is very much an exploration of a culture yeah. Um, what did you What did you learn from the culture that that you absolutely did not know before going into it? Hmm, that's a good question. I think that I would point to uh, there's a saying that I heard also about burlesque that um, may not be may not be a, a religion to them, but it is a part of a strong part of the burlesque feel. And that is uh, love the body you come with. In other words, in burlesque, every body type, you know, it's way ahead of, of the, the, the commercial reality of, of what our bodies are supposed to look like, that, um, that it's not about that. It's specifically uh, not about uh, what shape your body is. You, you can have fun and it can be uh, sexy, any type of body, any color, uh, and, and all that. So that, that, that's very freeing in an environment. Uh, you know, again, this, this kind of adds to the joy of the room because outside that room, that's not how the rest of the world does it. Uh, so it's, <laughs> it's, you know, so it's, it's, it's very freeing that way. So the film is burlesque heart of the glitter tribe, John Manning. It's been a pleasure talking with you. How can we see the film? <laughs> thank you. And thank you so much, Chris, for pursuing this to, to its logical end. Yeah. It opened uh, this last spring. We were in 26 uh, U.S. cities in a theatrical open through Accelerator Media, who, have, who has done a very good job for us. And one of their promises early on is that they have a strong relationship with Netflix. Uh, cut to yesterday, our film opened on Netflix, which is another way of saying in 190 countries <laughs> to 100 million subscribers. Absolutely brilliant. Congratulations, John. We all Thank aspire so to this. It's, it's so great. I'm, I'm so happy for you. Thank you, Chris. Uh, uh, let's stay in touch. I'd love to. Thanks. Absolutely. Take care, John. Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.